We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week. ICRT's roundup of the top news stories from around Taiwan. Today we'll be covering the last seven days of those news stories. I'm Keith Menconi of ICRT News. Joining me in studio today is Gavin Phipps, also of ICRT News. Hey, good evening. And also joining us in studio today is Edward White, an editor at the News Lens International Edition. Edward, good to have you back on the show. Good evening, Keith. Today on the show, we've got uh, three quite meaty stories to get to in the second half. Uh, Taiwan has already extended condolences to Thailand over the passing of King Pomipan Adunya Day. Uh, some shared history there with Taiwan, so we'll discuss that. Then a Scottish court has ruled against extraditing UK national Zayn Dean to Taiwan to serve a prison term uh, for a hit-and-run accident. Uh, we'll get a real-life lawyer all the way from merry old England to break the ruling down for us. And we'll round out the broadcast with a look at the season opener of a U.S. network sitcom uh, that was filmed almost entirely in Taiwan. But uh, first on the show this week was jam-packed with political news, uh, so we're going to spend the whole first half of the show working our way through some of the big events. The uh, biggest political event, obviously, came on Monday, uh, which happened to be October 10th, also known as Double Ten Day, also known uh, as Taiwan's National Day, which commemorates the beginning of the Wuchang Uprising in 1911, first step toward the collapse of the Qing Dynasty and the establishment of the ROC. Uh, now, I uh, actually got the day off, it being a national holiday and all, but uh, Gavin was working uh, because he was covering the event uh, itself for ICRT. So tell us a little bit about uh, what you saw that day. Um, it wasn't overly crowded with people. In fact, the numbers of people there, there were empty seats, in fact, in the area and the seating area opposite where I was. Maybe that was the weather which put people off. Of course, it was rather drizzly on Monday morning. But the show kicked off, as it usually does, with the ROC military honour guard, when contrasting to that, they were followed by the pom-pom girls or cheerleaders from the local baseball teams, which was rather contrasting, if you can imagine what I'm talking about there. Mm-hmm. Dress uniform military guys with rifles and then pom-pom girls. It's something for everybody. With pom-poms. Nothing is, wrong with that. There you go. Keeps um, everybody happy. Yeah, basically. And it was, as I said, there was the speeches, there was the national anthem, a famous now-retired local baseball player, Chen Jing Fong, sang the national anthem for the day. Um, he was accompanied by members of a, a Taipei Elementary School baseball team. And while there was no, there was basically there was no protests in the actual venue area itself, but both pro-China and anti-China protesters were in areas outside the venue, arguing their arguments for what they believe in. Mm-hmm. One one elderly man was removed from the venue mm-hmm. for shouting. Yeah, but then he. You couldn't really hear him, and I think he got removed because he was having arguments with people sitting around him. Mm-hmm. And he was more of a he was he was complaining that Tsai Ing-wen should not call herself president of the Republic of China because she doesn't stand for the Republic of China. That was his argument, but mm-hmm. then that exploded into an argument with some other people sitting around him. And I think police simply thought it was easier to just to get him out of the venue. Right, and uh, well, you've covered a lot of these events, so I mean that level of protest—that's pretty par for the course. Though it was very low this year, in fact, it was very low. It was, of course, we had when Chen, his last year in office, we had the red shirts running amok across the the, the showground, the celebrationary mm-hmm. area around the presidential palace. We've had other incidents on double ten days where there's been larger protests outside the area, but I think I think maybe the drizzly weather kept most protesters away this year. Mm. That they really don't care very much. Well, it is it is a political event after all. Uh, and let's get on to the politics of it. Uh, of course, uh, the main event there would be uh, Ty, uh, President Tsai Ing-wen's speech, uh, which some folks were expecting as, you know, kind of an important signal on the uh, the future of cross-strait policy uh, and, and how that's going to shape up in the future. Uh, but I think now that uh, folks have heard what she has to say, the verdict is not much new there. Well, there wasn't much new at all. But what she did do, though, was she talked a lot about domestic issues. Mm. Basically, she made domestic issues the crux of the speech. She talked about how Taiwan needs to develop its economy, how it needs to look elsewhere for like the new southbound policy, how her her government is looking to reform the judicial system and other systems, the pension system. Most of it, like I said, was based on domestic politics. And at the end, she got to cross-strait politics. She was very blunt and to the point there. She 
said that her government accepts that in 1992 in Singapore, both sides of the Taiwan Strait held a meeting. Mm-hmm. Of course, she didn't actually say, I'm going to adhere to the 1992 consensus, which I don't think anybody in their right mind would think she was going to do anyway. Mm-hmm. And she also called for both Taiwan and China to put aside their historical differences and hold positive dialogue on And what she said was, we're willing to talk to China on any issues. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, basically what we heard during her inauguration speech, although uh, maybe a, a touch more defiance there, uh, not say, saying that she's not going to buckle to uh, pressure from China. But she said that, I mean, she said that before, basically, mm-hmm. her government is not going to buckle under pressure from China. That was basically a big hint, I think, at basically China pressuring Taiwan in the international community, banning mm-hmm. it from international agencies, etc., etc., and also making it clear that they want Taiwan and her government to adhere to the 1992 consensus. All right. So uh, that gives our listeners a sense of uh, what President Tsai had to say. Uh, now with the reaction from the other political camp, we're happy to invite onto the show by phone uh, the head of the KMT's International Affairs Office, Eric Huang. Eric, uh, welcome to the show. Hi. Um, good morning and good weekend, everyone. Absolutely. And uh, so where were you? Uh, were, were you at the, uh, the ceremony this Monday? I was at home watching from my television. All right. Uh, no one can blame you for that after you've been to enough of these things. Uh, so, yeah, take this any way you want. What, 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 when you saw uh, what President Tsai had to say, when you saw the ceremony, what was your first reaction? Well, um, I can respond to uh, President Tsai's speech. You know, uh, what I like about her speech is I love her rhetorics. You know, what she said about domestic politics, especially when she said, a country will remain on weaver going forward. Change make us our country great. Um, you know, Taiwan is the common denominator for everybody living here. And especially, I appreciate her uh, talking about the baseball hero, Chen Jingfeng, and the predicaments of the young generation. Um, what I didn't like about her speech is the cross-strait part. Uh, it's pretty much what we heard, uh, what she said in her inaugural speech. And, you know, it, it, I, I, I think it's a good thing on one hand that she is still willing to communicate with Beijing. And she knows in her heart of hearts that open dialogue is the best. However, the question remains, um, how will she achieve that? The majority of the people here in Taiwan wants peace and stability among Taiwan Strait. So could she deliver? Um, I think Beijing has made clear they don't accept her stance so far. So here comes the question. When she promised Taiwanese in her campaign she will maintain the status quo, did she mean she will, uh, she will maintain the status quo minus the 1992 consensus? Okay. Um, this is very important because so far the 1992 consensus is something both Beijing and the KNT government, when we were still in office, agreed upon. Um, you know, in her speech, President Tsai said she cherished what has gone in the past 20 years, and she uh, acknowledged the spirit of the 1992 meeting. I just want to know what that means. I want to know if she cannot, you know, in my right mind, agree to the 1992 consensus, what's her formula going forward? And I think I'm disappointed in this regard. Uh, and I think um, things can turn south very quickly. Good comments there. Um, uh, we're going to bring Edward into this conversation as well. Uh, Edward, what were your thoughts? Well, just a question for Eric, really. I mean, you had the Fitch Rating Agency this week raise um, their view of Taiwan, I think, from an A-plus to a double-A-minus, and um, outlook is stable. So that I guess the internet- uh, I was a little surprised that double A minus was higher than a, <laughs> yeah, it's a, a single a, a plus. Anyway, that, it's a it's a raise. So I just wanted to get your response, Eric. To the, I mean, you finished that comment there, saying that things could turn sour. But in reality, uh, from an international investor's point of view, at least, um, people see, I guess, size position and how she's handling cross strait policy and. I guess the domestic economy at this stage is pretty uh, in a pretty pretty positive light. So, I mean, is it, are things really worsening at this stage? There are two parts. Um, one, uh, international community might still appreciate President Tsai and give her time to prove her cross-trade relations. Um, but, you know, you look domestically, the economy has already suffered here. Uh, the numbers 
of Chinese tourists went down. Uh, you know, investors among uh, domestic investors that is has lose faith in this regard as well. So I think um, you know we we you know and I especially want what's the best you know for the country uh, in terms of growth and everything else. But I think uh, President Tsai still owe the voters and Taiwanese people an answer as to if Beijing couldn't agree on you know her cross strait stance, will she continue this for the next three years? So are you hoping to see uh, from President Tsai uh, uh, another formulation uh, of, of, you know, how cross-strait ties could take place? Or do you think that the 92 consensus is really the only possible basis uh, that cross-strait ties could take base on? Well, I hope the 92 consensus is not the only formula that works. Uh, it, it was a working formula in the past. And if President Tsai can work something else out, and I, I think I'm very optimistic, and I, I want to see that to happen. But, do you, Eric, do, do you seriously think that Beijing is going to accept anything that Tsai Ing-wen works out? Because without Beijing's acceptance, it's not worked out at all. Exactly. That's, you know, going back to my point, that's why I say the 992 consensus has its significance. This is something Beijing already agreed to work with, right? Um, I, I know President Tsai is capable... I just don't know whether or not she will be able to, you know, walk away from the extreme of her parties and go to the middle and meet Beijing halfway. Right. Do you, do you think, do you think Tsai is under pressure from within the DPP not to go too far in either direction, which, of course, is leaving her in a bit of a pickle, so to speak? Well, uh, yes and no. I believe maybe, obviously, um, you know, there are factions of a party uh, who uh, doesn't believe in working with Beijing. And second, maybe, um, you know, for President Tsai, she really don't want to go that far in terms of her ideologies. Do you think, um, Eric, given Tsai's position was pretty well stated going into the election, I, I acknowledge your points well made. She said she would continue the status quo and that status quo is different under the KMT as it is under the DPP. But the DPP policy that they wouldn't acknowledge the 992 consensus was fairly well known. So, do you do you really see much of a change? Is a change politically even possible in that regard for um, for Tsai and the DPP? Um, I think the near future, the answer is probably no. Um, but I want to give credit when it's due. I think President Tsai has already moderated the DPP stand in terms of cross strait policies. And that, 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 that's why I say it's very crucial um, if she, whether or not she will even go further, even though uh, I don't predict that to happen. Can, can you say why you think she's moderated? It's, it's, um, you know, just for the fact that she recognized the spirit of the 1992 meetings and, you know, compare her to President Chen, I think, you know, at least her rhetoric, she's more willing to dialogue with Beijing. Hmm. I think a lot of international observers and uh, many folks in Taiwan as well uh, would be prone to, uh, instead of uh, blaming the Thai administration's formulation of cross-strait ties, uh, instead blame China for insisting on, you know, the 92 consensus. And, uh, you know, many people would see that as inflexibility. Uh, What do you make of that kind of criticism? Do you think that there are moves that China uh, could take to make this process a little easier? My feelings towards this are a bit of mixed, okay? Part of me, as a Taiwanese citizen, um, I I, I really like and I appreciate these international scholars or diplomats or officials. On the other hand, as a student of international politics, as a realist, I just don't see how that will work. Are, Are these guys arguing they have the power to insert on Beijing? to make them work in Taiwan's terms? If not, we have to look realistically what's best for Taiwan, uh, for its people, for its you know, livelihood, for its economy. And, you know, the answer to that is we have to work with Beijing and not, you know, provoke them in ways that's unhealthy. But would you consider, I mean, obviously playing the devil's advocate here, Eric, you just said you have to work with Beijing, but then it comes down to the terms of whose terms are you working on? 
but you know, speaking in you know, real politics, you know, there are powers involved. There's much a bigger power here. Right? You have more influence and more sway than Taiwan at, at this point. Mm. I, th- I think we're just being realistic. Okay. Uh, all right. So on that note, we're going to actually move on to the other big political news of the week. Uh, and we're glad to have Eric on the line to give us his take on it. Uh, KMT Party Chairwoman Hong Shouju is set to take a trip to China next month to attend the annual meeting between KMT uh, and Chinese leadership. Uh, that's not really big news. That's a that's an annual meeting, and uh, uh, you know, so fairly expected. But uh, the thing that's slightly bigger news is the I think it's still a rumor. I'm not sure if this has been con- uh, confirmed yet, <laughs> but uh, it has surfaced that it is widely expected. Uh, that she will meet with Chinese President Xi Jinping. Uh, Gavin, tell us a little bit about how this has uh, come to light over the past couple of days. This has come to light after the KMT announced that Hong Shouju will be travelling to Beijing to attend the Cross-Strait Trade, Economy and Cultural Forum, which is, which no, has lo- been which is, renamed. Which is no longer called the Cross-Strait Trade, Economy and Culture Forum. It's now called the Cross-Strait Peace Development Forum. Okay. It's an annual forum. It's been going since 2006, I believe, although it was originated in 2005 when then-KMT Chairman Lian Jan, Lian Jan met with Hu Jintao in Beijing. Mm-hmm. They came up with a forum, and it's basically a KMT Chinese Communist Party forum. Every year they have it. Now, of course, Hong Shouju going to Beijing. Technically, I guess Eric will fill us in on this, but as chairman of the KMT, she should possibly meet with the head of the Chinese Communist Party because if she doesn't, it could be seen as a slight from both sides, I believe. Well, thank you very much for noting the the change of the name. Um, And I just want to uh, make the reference here that, you know, this, this year the forum will have more focus on political end rather than just economic and culture end. Um, I, I want to take you guys back a year before when then Chairperson Chu went to meet with President Xi. Neither side made the announcement beforehand. Um, I think it is a norm for the Chinese president not to make public of their meetings. So um, you're right, Gavin. Uh, we did a public announce uh, Chairperson Hong will be going to Nanjing to pay respect to Dr. Sun Yat-sen. And the rumors have it she will meet with President Xi. If that happened, I won't be surprised. Mm. All right, so we get we get another I wouldn't be surprised, uh, but fair enough, fair enough. We can leave it at that <coughs> for today. But Eric, you said it's going to con- concentrate on political matters. So what, what obviously... Right. Your political it's, youth exchanges always seems to be a big thing when the KMT meet with the Communist Party. Uh, well, I, I, you know, the, 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 the most of you who are familiar with Chairperson Holm, um, her big deal is about you know strengthening the 1992 consensus and possibly signing a peace accord with Beijing. So I think these things are probably to look out for. But then the peace accord. Let's go back to this peace accord because I remember when she first mentioned the peace accord, I was always a bit of a loss as to who the peace accord would be signed by and who the parties in the peace accord would be referred to as. Right. That, those are very good questions. Um, the peace accord was first brought up, you know, in, during the uh, President Ma's re-election. Right. So this is not nothing new. And to your questions. Um, I guess we will have an answer very soon when she do meet with President Xi. Eric, uh, Ed here. Just wondering if you can walk us through the, if there is dissent. I mean, there's been reporting about sort of splits within the KMT on the level of support for the um, chairperson's 1992 consensus uh, or sort of cross-strait platform. Can you just talk a little bit about the different views from within the party there? Sure, yeah. So the, the thing you're referring to, I believe, is when um, former Pre- Vice President Wu traveled to the United States and he had made comments uh, criticizing Chairperson Home uh, about her cross-strait policies. Um, however, since then, Chairperson Home has came out uh, to say she, she will not abandon the 1992 consensus. On the contrary, she will look to build on the 1992 consensus. 
So has the party been divided? Um, I, I, I believe not, at least not on the policy front. I think the party are uh, within the party, if divided, are between different camps who support uh, different candidates for next year's uh, chairperson election. So it's a, it, it all boils down to whether or not there's that uh, different interpretations, uh, if you remove the different interpretations. Uh, so do, do you see that issue? Uh, of course, we're, we're talking about now the 92 consensus, uh, whether or not you, know, you have uh, one China, different interpretations, or one China omit that different interpretations line. Uh, some people would place a lot of significance on that different interpretations thing, because uh, if you don't have different interpretations, then... Uh, it's, you know, inching closer to, uh, well, I, I don't want to use the term unification, but some people really would see it that way, uh, it's in- inching closer in that direction. Uh, do you see that uh, different interpretations line, Eric, uh, as being something that is really causing uh, a lot of disagreement within the party right now? Um, yes. If that is so the case, you will have, you will cause a lot of disagreement within the party. However, um, I think the, the, the common knowledge about Chairperson Hong are false. People believe that she does not stand up for the sovereignty of the Republic of China, but that's not what she's saying. She's saying um, she wants mutual recognitions between Taiwan and Beijing. She's saying Beijing should recognize the existence of ROC. Um, very similar to what President Tsai said um, her double, during her double ten speech. Mm. And so the potential challenges to Hung next year, how how greatly would their position on this issue differ from what she's saying? Um, well, well, for, for, first, her challenge is, um, you know, she needs to steer through what's going on within the party right now. You know, our staff hasn't been paid for almost two months now. And second, she needs to clarify on her cross-strait policies. And third, I think a lot of it uh, really depends on her trip this time, going to mainland China, whether or not she meets with President Xi. Um, So, you know, saying all these three things, I think she stands a very good chance to be re-elected. Even if she has challengers, I think it's good for the party because... Now, all these things we discussed haven't really been discussed within the party. So I look forward to debate within the party. Kind of kind of getting back to uh, what Gavin was uh, discussing a moment ago, just in terms of the substance of uh, what's going to be happening uh, during this meeting. So if, if these talks are more political in nature, of course, the, there's uh, restrictions on, you know, uh, signing agreements that would need to get uh, approval from the central government. So... Uh, is is there a fine line that they're going to be walking in terms of uh, talking politics, but not making agreements? I mean, what 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 is your thinking on that? Well, well one, um, we, we kind of touched base on this um, earlier. You know, her ideologies of strengthening the 992 consensus is walking from economic exchanges into political talks. Okay, and she is very big on having the PRC uh, recognizing the existence of the ROC. Um, I cannot go into the details of, you know, what will be discussed within the meeting, but um, I, I won't be surprised again, um, you know, if the meetings were along these lines. Right, one final question about the trip, Eric. Will, will any officials from the KMT be reporting to the presidential office about the trip, either prior to it or after it? Uh, we're, we're open we're open to discuss with the government. Uh, we are not doing this only for the sake of our party. We're doing this for the benefit of all people. All righty. Well, uh, we have been speaking there to the head of the KMT's International Affairs Office, Eric Huang. Uh, and we are very grateful, Eric, for you taking the time to join us this morning. Uh, happy to have you again on the show. And uh, next time, if you have the time, you're more than welcome to uh, stick around for the second half as well. I'd be interested to uh, hear your thoughts on some of the, you know, getting away from politics, uh, that kind of stuff that's going on in Taiwan. But for today, we'll have to leave it there. So, uh, Eric, thank you so much for speaking with us. Well, thank you for having me. All right. Well, we're going to round that one out there and head on to the second half of the show. But we got a little break first. When we return, uh, we've got international news of three different flavors, uh, head of state news, legal news, entertainment news. We are all over the place in the second half, but it should be good. Uh, Then, as always, for our podcast listeners, we've got a bonus story, so make sure to stick around for that one. 
Uh, if you're not already listening to the extended podcast version of the show, make sure to check it out on iTunes or the ICRT website. Lots of extra stuff there. Uh, so, a whole lot to look forward to when we return to Taiwan this week. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around Taiwan. I'm Keith Manconi, joined by Gavin Phipps and Edward White. Three stories to get to now in the second half of the show, uh, going all over the world for this one. Starting off in Thailand, though, um, we have some sad news for Thailand's residents. Uh, with the passing of their longtime king, Pumipan Adunya Day, uh, and uh, of course, uh, Taiwan has already issued its, you know, uh, formal condolences uh, to Thailand. But, uh, Gavin, tell us a little bit about this. Actually, I spoke to Ross Feingold of the DC International Advisory Group earlier all about what the king's death could mean for Taiwan. All right, a little pressure off us. uh, So we're going to throw things over to Ross to lay out uh, what, if any, uh, significance this has for Taiwan. Right, so how, how do you think the death Thursday afternoon of King Pumipon Adunya Day will affect ties between Taipei and Bangkok? Well, of course, uh, our condolences go out to the people of Thailand. Uh, you know, Thailand is a significant uh, destination for inbound investment by China, uh, with major ASEAN countries like Singapore, Japan, Korea, and, and Taiwan is a player as well. Uh, so Thailand certainly factors into the go-south policy of the Thailand government, but whether or not the government of Thailand has an interest in, in participating that, especially now, given this period of mourning that will be upcoming, uh, it remains an, an unknown. So it's going to be up to the Taiwan side to, to make justification for why the Thailand side should be spending some of their own political capital or risking relations with China to engage with Taiwan. But, I mean, do you think the royal family have that much of a clout in Thailand with the military government to actually interfere with, like, international trade deals and other like? Well, it's a, it's a great question, and normally one would say no, but what, what we've seen from most uh, reporting out of Thailand in, in recent months, and, and especially in recent days leading up to the king's death, was that the, the crown prince and, and the military... Uh, seem to be cooperating in a smooth transition. And, and I think the key thing here is, absent other other signs, we should not underestimate the influence of, of the crown prince uh, going forward. Right, of course, and people say that it was Lee Dong-hui's visit to Thailand in 1994, where he held talks with the, the late Thai king about his original go-south policy. That's another interesting point during this period, because if we look to compare when Lee Kuan Yew passed away in Singapore about a year and a half ago, uh, Singapore agreed to allow visits by some other significant personalities from Taiwan, including the president and political party leaders who attended the funeral. Uh, and so we should be watching what level of interaction between Taiwan and Thailand occurs in the, in the coming days. Who from Taiwan's side go, goes to express their condolences, who will attend the funeral once the, the funeral arrangements are, are, are announced. Uh, I think it's a safe assumption, though, given how close Thailand has become to come to China recently, and also the deterioration in cross-strait ties in, in recent months, that, that there will be a downgrade in the representation from Taiwan versus what occurred with Singapore. So it sort of shows you where things stand between Thailand and China, Thailand and Taiwan, and, and you know, the challenges that Taiwan is facing in executing its policy to get closer to Southeast Asia. So you don't see the Premier or the Vice President from Taiwan heading to Thailand for the funeral? Very tough. Uh, that, that would be quite a surprise. Uh, absent some personal ties that these individuals have to Thailand, and as far as I know, that they, they just don't have that. But one of the drivers for President uh, Ma at the time or Su Jung Chang from the DPP going to Singapore was that Lee Kuan Yew had actually met these people during his many visits to Taiwan over the years or when those individuals had gone to Singapore. So there was also a personal relationship factor that might not exist um, in the case of current uh, government leaders in Taiwan vis-a-vis the Thai king or, or more broadly the Thai royal family. Right, let's push the bucket right out and say, could Lee Dong Hui go? Well, given his reduced uh, uh, travel uh, due to age and illness, probably unlikely. Uh, also, I think that that would just be too 
explosive as far as Thailand's relations with China. Look, Thailand has been increasingly closer to China in recent years. The amount of investment from China into Thailand is, is increasingly large. It's far larger than the amounts Taiwan invests in China. Thailand is going to play a, a key role in one belt, one road, in, in connectivity between places like Yunnan province down to Singapore with a high-speed rail being built that will bypass through Thailand, which section is being built by Chinese railway companies. So we should not underestimate the importance that Thailand now places on its relationship with China. And it's up to Taiwan to find a way to strengthen bilateral ties, but but do it in a way that's not going to scare Thailand off. All right. And once again, that was Ross Feingold of D.C. International Advisory. Uh, And uh, Edward, uh, any thoughts to add to that? I I guess I'd just add to what Ross said, that for Taiwanese investors in Thailand, the economy there has been surprisingly uh, positive this year. International uh, funds have been flowing in there. I think Bloomberg had a good piece back in late August around um, it's an economy that's basically all the stocks there and the bond markets have been outperforming. They've been attracting investment and the, the currency hasn't been doing too badly either. And that's amid um, you know a little bit of political turmoil really in terms of you've still got a lot of human rights abuses or concerns over human rights abuses there. And still pretty fresh from the latest coup, you know, 2014 was like when the military again took over in Thailand, but still the economy's done okay, investors have still been interested. So with that in mind, I don't think people will be too worried about this latest event. Mm. Uh, so so probably, you know, not a, a, a huge impact on the long-term trajectory. I mean, this is something that folks kind of knew was coming for a long time. That's right, particularly given the, um, the king had been very ill for a long time. Right, exactly. All right, uh, so we're going to leave Thailand behind and head on over to the UK. Uh, because over in the UK, we had some legal goings on this week. Last month, of course, uh, the Court of Criminal Appeals in Scotland found that the United Kingdom cannot extradite Zane Dean back to Taiwan, uh, citing concerns over prison conditions. Uh, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Uh, Gavin, who is Zane Dean and uh, why is Taiwan interested in bringing him back here? Zane Dean is, or was rather, a British businessman who was in Taiwan for many, many years. And in March of 2010, a car he was in hit and killed a newspaper delivery man early in the morning in Taipei. This led to his eventual arrest. He went to court. The court case dragged out for about a year and a half, if I recall. He was sentenced to four years in prison in July of 2012 for hit and run and being under the influence of alcohol. He then left Taiwan in August of 2012 using the passport belonging to another British national. Hmm. He turned up in Britain. And Taiwan authorities ordered, or requested rather, British authorities deal with him. Mm -hmm. He was then put into prison in Britain in October of 2013. He was imprisoned in Edinburgh, pending appeals for his extradition from Taiwan. Mm. And then what happened two weeks ago happened in Scotland. All right, so that case has been kind of uh, ongoing, simmering in the background, picking up a lot of uh, media attention here in Taiwan uh, because, you know, Taiwan has been making uh, repeated requests to get him extradited back here. But uh, he's been held in uh, a U.K. prison for about three and a half years. Then in that uh, this latest ruling, uh, that decision was reversed. He's not going to be uh, extradited to Taiwan currently, uh, and he was released. Yes, the Scottish justice system did rule that Zane Dean should be released from prison, uh, but apparently he still has to report to the police once a week. All right, so that's where his case stands right there. Uh, but we're going to bring into the mix right now somebody with much more authority than I uh, and Gavin uh, to comment on all of this, uh, that being Bob Cow, who we've had on the show a number of times. Uh, he, once again, is a lawyer and legal researcher at Queen Mary University of London uh, and also the writer behind the ta- uh, popular Taiwan blog. So, I mean, he's uh, a man of Taiwanese descent uh, who covers Taiwan law and is living in the UK. So you could not ask for a better uh, source of information on this case. Uh, I spoke with him recently, so here is that conversation. Bob Cow, good to have you back on the show. Glad to be back. So just to uh, give our listeners some sense of the significance of this case, uh, I've read in a couple of places that uh, this was 
Taiwan's first ever extradition case, uh, and it's always difficult to you know establish a superlative. Um, and, and, you know, it kind of depends on what we may count as an extradition case. But uh, I, I think it's safe to say that uh, this case itself is really testing uh, somewhat uncharted waters for how extradition would work with Taiwan and other countries. Yeah, that's correct. Um, actually, this uh, case, uh, the agreement between Taiwan and the UK uh, for extradition was signed uh, specifically for the for Zane Dean's case. And he was uh, arrested in Scotland soon after agreement was signed. So, um, yeah, it's 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 a first for for Taiwan, um, as far as we know, and it does seem like the Ministry of Justice uh, in Taiwan has really you know, not not really done as good of a job or as effective of a job as as a, as it could. So it's kind of stumbled through some some things, and and that. You know, I don't know if that may have contributed to perhaps the the the, the judgment here, where uh, the extradition is not happening as of now. When we okay, so when we look at why they made this ruling, uh, let's kind of uh, discuss what the judges were looking at. Of course, it was a, a two-one split, but the majority. Uh, we're basically saying that there was no way to uh, assure that the human uh, that the uh, conditions of the jail would be up to uh, international standards for human rights. So uh, tell us a little bit what was behind that decision. Yeah, so there were three judges, and it was a two to one decision. And basically, two of the judges said that uh, the, pres- the prison conditions in Taiwan uh, do not meet. The, the standard of the Article 3 of the European Convention on Human Rights, which uh, states that no one shall be subjected to torture or to inhuman or degrading treatment or punishment. Now, the Taiwanese authorities did promise that uh, Zane Dean would um, have a special cell. He would get better treatment than uh, the average prisoner in Taiwan. Uh, he would get. Uh, he would have access to uh, healthcare. He would have uh, someone posted outside his cell. He would have only one cellmate or no cellmate. Uh, the the room would be larger. Um, so there were a lot of promises made, um, and uh, th- there was no no issue of the the judges thinking that these promises would be broken. Um, but uh, the the majority opinion did state that while what uh, his condition his uh, living condition is may may not in of itself uh, contravene the human rights standard the whole prison itself does not meet the standard and obviously his cell is still in the prison the prison guards are still part of the whole uh, larger prison so it doesn't matter that he's getting the special treatment there's still going to be overcrowding uh, in the in the prison in general there's still going to be uh, lack of uh, personnel, uh, which is still going to affect him. Uh, the, the, there's still lack of personnel in terms of health care, and that's still going to still going to affect him. Yes, the, the Ministry of Justice has promised that he'll get uh, better treatment, uh, which which the court recognized. But but I think uh, this is more of a, 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 a judgment on the whole Taiwanese prison system itself, and the court just didn't think that it was up to human rights standard. Hmm. Uh, All right. Well, of course, uh, one of the things that makes this case really interesting is that there was a very strong dissent from that third judge that we mentioned uh, a couple of seconds ago. Uh, But let's hold off on that just for one second and kind of continue looking at what this says about Taiwan's prisons, because I think that that's what a lot of Uh, the folks watching this case have really picked up on is, I mean, this seems like a a fairly damning indictment of uh, Taiwan's prisons and and the conditions in there. Uh, And I know that you don't, you're not necessarily an expert on all that, but uh, is is that what you're taking away from this as well? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I I don't think, uh, I don't think this is a surprise uh, to to people, uh, at least to experts in Taiwan, people who, who work with prisons or the criminal justice system or, or the Ministry of Justice, they know they know there's a huge overcrowding problem. Uh, they know there's way too many prisoners for the space that exists. Um, you know, they, they know the, the lack of personnel, uh, lack of uh, adequate health care. That, that's all. Uh, none of this is a secret. But I think 
to the average Taiwanese person, this may be pretty new, uh, pretty new information. And um, you know, I, I don't think anyone would argue that uh, Taiwanese prison conditions are are good. Uh, it's hard to argue that prison conditions are good in the majority of the countries. So, um, you know, I think it's some people in Taiwan might be embarrassed that this is kind of an international. Uh, uh, now there's an international international opinion judgment on this, but I think this may may perhaps spur some. Uh, Reforms. I mean, I think that, uh, the MOJ has already um, is already trying to decrease the prison population, but perhaps this will uh, uh, help them uh, uh, move forward, uh, move uh, move faster with with uh, just making the conditions better for prisoners in Taiwan. All right, and uh, let's move on now to the dissent. Uh, the The judges here, we should, I guess, we should just run through their names real quick. Uh, it's it's a very British system, which is. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> for for us Americans, it sounds uh, it's it, it it's got some character to it. We've got Lady Patton, we've got Lord Drummond Young, and uh, Lady Clark of Kelton. Uh, the dissent there was Lord Drummond Young, and uh, what was he framing his dissent around? His his first uh, he he made it very clear in his dissent that he really wanted to defer to the executive branch of the government. So that would be you know the Ministry of Justice. Uh, uh, in Taiwan and the corresponding agencies in the United Kingdom, and you know they were the ones that uh, decided to sign this extradition agreement. So he he wanted uh, to say that well they must they must know what they're doing. So this is a decision for them, which is actually contrary to to the extradition act because the extradition act clearly states that the courts you know get to decide whether. Um, the extradition actually can go ahead, uh, depending on the human rights conditions. But, but he he really wanted uh, to say, well, you know, we should we should defer to to the executive branch. And the second thing that he was uh, he had he mentioned that I believe is is pretty important is he didn't necessarily think that the standard the human rights standard that uh, 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 that should be applied here should be the same that one should be the same one that's applied in the UK. He was okay with uh, perhaps a, a, a lower standard for for Taiwan. Um, you know, didn't have to meet the same. So the conditions in Taiwan, uh, the same conditions in Taiwan could be could meet the human rights standard, but not meet uh, but not meet it in the UK. Hmm. All right. Well, let's uh, let's look at some of the concerns that uh, he had. I mean, uh, he was kind of warning of the consequences uh, of of the ruling. So what what kind of precedent does this set, and and what are the uh, potential consequences that he was warning about. I think he's more worried about the consequences for the UK uh, and not for Taiwan. I think uh, he ended his dissent uh, talking about, you know, what if this was a, a much more serious charge, of a terrorism charge, uh, and conviction in another country? Then you know, would 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 such uh, you know would would the judge be so uh, adamant about ensuring human rights uh, in the receiving country? So. So that's that's his main concern, and that's his concern with the uh, establishing case law in the UK that you know that may may hinder perhaps uh, uh, more st- other extradition uh, uh, cases in the future. But in Taiwan, I think there's some talk about you know this uh, this is an embarrassment. This will make this will mean that Taiwan will never be able to extradite another pr- another prisoner from another country. I don't think that's I don't think that's the case at all. I think this is the one sweet generous case. I don't think this uh, this will if in the future there are other extradition cases. I don't think this would uh, negatively affect Taiwan's ability to extradite prisoners. Uh, so long as obviously the prison conditions improve and. Obviously, that's that's what the Ministry of Justice is, is already working on. All right. Well, looking forward on all of this, uh, the Taiwanese government has said that they are going to continue their efforts uh, to get Zayn Dean extradited. Uh, I guess that means more legal efforts in the UK, maybe an appeal. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what would be involved there. But is, is there a practical reason for Taiwan to care about where uh, people that commit crimes in Taiwan end up serving their jail sentence? Or, or, or I mean, is this just a matter of international standing? Uh, it's, it's, really, it's really just a, um, kind of the integrity of the, the, 
the justice system, right? You're you, you've gone through the whole the whole criminal justice system. You've been convicted. You your appeals have have been uh, exhausted, and you should serve the the, the sentence in, in the country. I think I think most uh, um, most uh, uh, countries in the world would uh, want to see that through, and. I don't think it's anything special with Taiwan in this case. Uh, the only special thing that is that perhaps the first case, it, it's a high-profile case, uh, at least in Taiwan. And also, perhaps there is one thing special in terms of uh, for, for Taiwan here is that Zane Dean has, has really been really negative about the Taiwanese uh, legal system, criminal justice system, and the prison system. And I think perhaps there's a, there's a sentiment that you know maybe we want to to bring him back and treat him humanely and to show that, no, what he said is, is, is not true. No, I think that the truth is somewhere in the middle, but um, I think that's what uh, perhaps some in the Ministry of Justice would uh, want, to, want to show the world that Taiwan is, uh, has human rights and its prisons uh, meet human rights standards. All right, so once again, that was Bob Cow, who is, of course, the writer behind the Taiwan Law blog. Uh, and Bob was bringing up there uh, sort of the international ramifications for this. Uh, it sounds like, you know, the biggest fallout is going to be uh, the perception of Taiwan's prisons and uh, really does seem like a somewhat damning ruling uh, to have uh, two judges sign off on, on, on this notion that they don't meet international norms. Uh, is uh, is that something, based on your reporting, uh, is, is that something that people are going to pay attention to, those, you know, international observers that uh, are, are, are looking at Taiwan? I think so. I mean, the diplomatic community, international diplomatic community, particularly the Europeans, um, the British office and the European, European Union office in Taiwan, have been pretty vocal on issues related to the judicial system here. Just last week, I think, the UK office had... Uh, three experts, uh, mainly looking at the uh, capital punishment and the death penalty rules here, but they were also looking at the broader judicial system and things like psychiatric testing for prisoners. So it certainly is an issue that uh, the international community uh, are willing to put a lot of pressure on uh, the government here, and it is something that is, has been marked, the judicial system has been marked for reform by the Tsai government as well. Mm. Uh, all right, so perhaps some continuing fallout uh, from this, uh, but we'll, we'll have to wait and see. We're going to move on now, though, to a uh, warmer and fuzzier story, I think it's fair to say. Uh, the last story for the broadcast of the show, and uh, we're going to be talking about a little show in the U.S. by the name of Fresh Off the Boat. Fresh Off the Boat! Now, just to give our listeners uh, some background on this show... This is the first primetime U.S. network sitcom to focus on the life of an Asian family. Uh, in about 20 years, uh, there w- is, is one example before that, but it was in the 90s. Uh, and it just happens to be a family of Taiwanese heritage, interestingly enough. Uh, season 3 premiered earlier this week in the U.S., and that just happened to be filmed mostly in Taipei. Uh, some of it actually like maybe a, a half a kilometer from my house. So kind of cool there. Gavin, you, uh, surprise, surprise, are a bit of a fan of the show. I quite like this show, actually. It makes me laugh. And if anything makes me laugh, I like it, because lots of things don't make me laugh. <laughs> this does make me particularly laugh. It tells the story of the Huang family, and they came to Taiwan, of course, for Louis Huang. He's the main father of the family. The patriarch. The patriarch of the family. In the last episode, before this episode in Taiwan aired, at the end of last season on the ABC hit comedy show, he had a bit of a dispute with his brother Gene. Anyway, his brother Gene was getting married here in Taiwan, and the Huangs came over for the marriage. Right, and uh, just another aspect of the show that's important to point out is the the two uh, parent characters, the father and the mother in this family, uh, they were both born in Taiwan uh, and then they moved over to the U.S. Uh, where they're raising their kids. So uh, this episode where they're coming to Taiwan, you know, it's it's they're returning to the place where they grew up. Uh, and to a certain extent, they're having, you know, that reverse cultural shock where you realize how much your new home has changed you. Uh, I had a chance to speak with the show's executive producer, uh, Melvin Marr, earlier this week. Uh, and he's somewhat familiar with some of these identity issues. Uh, his family actually hails from Hong Kong, uh, and he grew up in Los Angeles. So, uh, you know, he, he's familiar with that tension of being somewhat caught between cultures. 
Uh, and so I want to play for you uh, a li- just a little bit of that interview uh, where he talks about uh, his experience filming here. And uh, we'll start with him uh, explaining why he and the director for the show, Nanachka Khan, uh, thought that it was important for the show to start the third season uh, with an episode here in Taiwan. Well, starting the third season, um, Nanachka Khan and I were sort of just talking about what would be a good starting point. And, you know, the show has always um, found a commonality amongst, um, you know, immigrants and people who have families or, or, or uh, relatives that have immigrated to America. And, you know, she's Persian American, I'm Chinese American. Um, But, you know, in creating the show, we've always found similarities between our families. And that's sort of the universal thing that makes, uh, I think, the show relatable and successful. Um, And we talked about something that was uh, was very interesting. The first time she, as a child, went back to Iran, and the first time I um, went back to Hong Kong and then, you know, southern China with my parents. And we just talked about what that felt like, you know, and... Being born in America, sort of hearing about stories of the old country through your grandparents and your folks, and finally getting to see it. And that was something that I thought was authentic to what we were trying to do, you know, and what we had been doing. And um, it just seemed like this amazing opportunity to sort of talk about um, identity and just sort of where you belong uh, as an American-born you know, um, uh, citizen, um, you know, with, uh, one sort of culture, uh, with sort of a culture, uh, from elsewhere. And, um, it was really fun to sort of talk about the Huang family that way. And, uh, that's when we just sort of start out, started out, um, breaking an idea. And then we went to the studio and said, Hey, I have a great idea. Can we go to Taiwan? <laughs> and, uh, you know, we, we, we set out to, to do it, you know? Mm. Uh, I've actually talked to a number of uh, Taiwan government officials that are trying to promote uh, movie filming in Taiwan. I don't think that any of them had ever considered TV uh, as as something that could take place in Taiwan. So I'm really curious to hear your experience of what it was like to bring a TV film production uh, to Taipei. Uh, was it was it challenging? Was it easier than you expected? How was that? Uh, we were very fortunate. I, I have to give credit. Uh, to where credit is due, and uh, my good friend David Lee, who's a longtime collaborator with Ang Lee, um, really helped me um, sort of navigate a lot of it. You know, um, we uh, the show did a uh, sort of a little viral video about a year and a half ago, where we were sort of poked fun at um, you know the Golden Globes in 1995 where uh, Aang was nominated for Sense and Sensibility, but then lost to Mel Gibson. It was this whole little online video that, um, uh, you know, made it seem like the Wong family was ready, and it was the Super Bowl for the Wong family, and they were very disappointed that Aang lost. And it was just a little joke that we did to promote the show, and, um, you know, I guess Aang saw it, and um, David, um, who I had been friendly with, you know, uh, was sort of completely bowled over by it. And when we first had the idea, you know, even before I went to the studio, I just sort of, I called David and I said, like, I have this crazy idea. What do you think? And, you know, they had just finished um, a movie uh, called Silence with uh, Martin Scorsese directing. Much bigger, obviously. Um, and uh, I said, do you think this could this could work? And he said, yeah, let's try it, you know? And uh, I'm, I'm behind you. Just let me know and I'll help you navigate. And, um you know, true to form, when we came to um, Taipei in, in May to scout, we went on a bunch of meetings with every minister that you could think of in Taipei City and New Taipei City, uh, the cultural minister of Taiwan, all amazing people. Just when we got in, in front of them and we sort of talked about what we wanted to do, they were, uh, they were amazing. They were so helpful and just so, you know, enthusiastic about it. And, um, you know, just willing to share and uh, share their own experiences. And, and we just sort of thought like this could happen, you know, outside of the sort of normal production, uh, hardships and variables, there was, um, a real excitement, I think by the part of, uh, the Taiwanese government. 
that really help. Yeah, they're definitely uh, very eager to get uh, the more filmmakers into Taiwan. Uh, just to talk about some of the uh, specifics of you know uh, the, the the filming itself. I mean, uh, some of the more uh, noticeable shots to me anyway uh, that made it into the episode were. Uh, you, you had some very important uh, scenes at the Chiang Kai-shek Memorial. That was really cool, very expansive shot. Uh, and then you, you, you even feel, uh, filmed, I think it was in sort of western Taipei, uh, I think it might have been Dihua Jie, Dihua Street, uh, that, pretty close to my house actually, which was pretty cool to see. Mm-hmm. Uh, so tell me about some of the cool locations uh, that, that, you, that you enjoyed filming in. I mean, we, we picked sort of three big ones, which I think were essential to the storyline, which is um, something that really you know, uh, visually you wanted, you know, the world to see and sort of associate with, with Taiwan, which is the Chiang Kai-shek Memorial, that whole area where the opera house is and, and the uh, concert hall is like, I thought that was just, it was beautiful. It's, it's, it's right in the middle and that's iconically Taiwan, you know? And, um, the storyline sort of revolves around, um, Ken Jong's character who's plays Lewis's brother getting married. And we thought, what's like sort of an iconic hotel, you know? And uh, the Grand Hotel sort of fit that. This amazing facade and this, uh, this like, you walk into that lobby and you're just like, you feel like you're in a different time, in a different world. And um, we picked that. And then um, there was something about Dihua Street that was just so charming and great. You know, it was like one of these things where it just, you couldn't replicate it in a back lot, you know? And... Uh, it was definitely like when we first scouted it and walked it, we we're like that we, we have to do it here. <laughs> Whatever we have to do, we have to shoot here. And, uh, we sort of crafted the idea of the, the episode around that a little bit. All righty. And once again, that was executive producer, Melvin Marr. Just remind our listeners that, uh, the show is actually airing in Taiwan as well. It's going to air on Fox Taiwan, uh, next week, next Wednesday at 10 PM. So you can look for it there. Uh, and, uh, talking to you, uh, a little bit before we started recording, Edward, uh, we heard there from Melvin Marr, he was talking about, uh, working with the local government to get this all made, uh, and this is something that you've been paying attention, uh, a little bit to, uh, this is really, uh, a- an important initiative for, uh, the Taiwan government, is making it easier, uh, to film here. That's right. I think there's, um, not just the Taiwan central government, but maybe the Taipei city government as well, um, offer co-production sort of uh, essentially subsidies to try and attract uh, foreign film companies to come to Taiwan. Um, going back a few years, I think The Life of Pi was one of the sort of first really big films to be filmed here. Since then, I think Scorsese filmed um, a movie Silence here mm-hmm. and then another movie, uh, Lucy, starring Scarlett Johansson, has been filmed here recently. And I guess perhaps Taiwan's heading towards some sort of critical mass where you have the right kind of production facilities here that will start to really attract bigger and bigger um, movies or as we've seen recently with this one the tv series and i guess looking at it from as a as a new zealander we're going back uh, more than 10 years when the lord of the rings sort of franchise first well peter jackson got the rights to film lord of the rings and then they managed to extend that to six films <laughs> overall <laughs> Um, but what what you ended up getting out of that was, and that there was that was all built on the back of well, a lot of that help was helped along by uh, tax subsidies, similar to co-pro- the co production agreements you have here. And then basically that then snowballs once you have the film infrastructure in place, you have the employees, the sort of the people that can do all the special effects and the camera work and all the rest of it. You then start to attract more and more. And recently uh, back home, James Cameron sort of set up shop in Wellington as well. And so it'll be great to see that kind of thing happening in Taiwan. Mm. Yeah, and uh, I've actually spoken to a couple of the officials that are involved in this, and uh, their take is that uh, it's it's not even just about attracting more international filmmakers. It's also about uh, giving local filmmakers an opportunity to work with more experienced crews so you can uh, sort of build up the local uh, talent and local ability here as well. Yeah, that's right. And and once, like I said, once you've got that infrastructure there, there's a lot you can do with that. You know, mm-hmm. you've got big sound recording facilities, so that means bands can come mm-hmm. in and local productions become higher quality and that attracts, like, you know, people from other places. Mm-hmm. The, the other thing, I guess, is the, the broader Chinese market and whether there's an opportunity for Taiwan to take a bigger share of that. You had 
I think within the last couple of weeks, Jack Ma and Steven Spielberg signed a big agreement. Mm. And so obviously Americans are interested in the Chinese language audience and you know, Taiwan should be able to position itself as perhaps an easier place to do business than, mm-hmm. than China maybe in this area too. Mm. All right. So maybe uh, some, some upshots there from uh, local cooperation. Uh, when Peter Jackson went to New Zealand, uh, did he ever make it to your town? Did you get dressed up as an orc while he was there? <laughs> well, just to be clear, I mean, he's a New Zealander, so he, he brought the franchise mm-hmm. uh, to New Zealand. Um, no, I, I can't say that I've ever dressed up in uh, Lord of the Rings costumes, but I'm, he was I'm, working I'm, with... I'm in the minority there. Yeah, yeah it's really. Well, most people had a part in the film. Yeah, right. So, yeah. so you missed out. Yeah, I did, unfortunately. Either that or one of the, the Hobbit movies. Um, yeah, I was unlucky not to be an extra. You missed your shot at stardom. I know. That's too bad. All right, well, uh, we're going to move on to our final story today, and we've got uh, just the thing to return a smile to your face uh, because we're talking about a, a, a one particular kind of drug, uh, but it's, you know, smiled upon. It's not frowned upon. You can have this drug. Coffee. Coffee is the drug. I don't know why I'm doing this article at all because I don't, in fact, drink coffee. You have tea every but morning. But there you go. I thought Goodbye Pork Pie was the best New Zealand movie of all time, but no one seems to agree with me. Maybe we should have ended it on that note, but we've got, we've got this story to get through. I'm sure there are many people that agree with that. <laughs> anyway, here's a bunch of statistics about coffee in Taiwan. This is a report that came out earlier this week, right? I should warn you, this is a report by Starbucks Taiwan. Mm. Now, this according to Starbucks. <laughs> Apparently consumers here in the island drank 2.85 billion cups of coffee in 2015, and that translated into a staggering daily consumption of 780,000 cups. Now, according to Starbucks, Taiwan imported 28,554 tonnes of coffee beans in 2015. That was up a staggering 61% from 2011. And did you know that the compound annual growth rate of Taiwan's coffee bean imports hit 13% over that five-year period. I did not know that. Now, more data shows that Taiwan consumed, of, like I said, the 2.85 billion cups of coffee a year over the past five years. That means each consumer in Taiwan drank 122 cups of coffee per year over that period. Except me, because I didn't drink any. You're dragging the average I down. am not part of this statistical report. Mm-hmm. I am not a number. <laughs> you are a number. You're, you're a big fat zero. That's that's still a number. Uh, now, Ed, Edward, would you be dragging this average up or down? I think I'd probably make up for Gavin Shear quite easily there. <laughs> yeah. Right. Did you know also, also the, the coffee operator, Starbucks, said most local customers favour black coffee without cream or milk. That surprises me. With sales of black coffee at Starbucks outlets for the first half of this year rising 12% from a year earlier. Interesting. And apparently City Cafe, which is the coffee shops in the 7-Elevens here, mm. they say they've also seen an uptrend in people drinking black coffee. Well, you know, maybe that's because uh, the folks at Starbucks never ask you if you want milk or sugar in your coffee. They just assume that you don't want it unless you ask for it, which is something I've noticed. I don't know. Do you want another reason I gave up drinking coffee? Starbucks. <laughs> It's, it's a, absolutely true. It's a convincing enough reason. It's true. They Just, opened when I, my office was once upon a time on Nanjing East Road many many moons ago when Starbucks came here. One of their first branches was on Nanjing East Road, two doors down from my office. Mm. I drank too much coffee. I ceased drinking coffee. Starbucks stopped me drinking coffee. I'd like to know what the working conditions there are like because they're quite famous in the states. You probably know more about this, Keith, than I, but. They say that they fund college educations and have health care for all their workers and things. I'd mm. be interested to know whether that extends to um, their employees well, next in time Taiwan. you're down the shop getting a cup of joe, you can ask them. Yeah, I don't often go to Starbucks. <laughs> <laughs> so where do you get your coffee? Where do you get your coffee fixed? Oh, we're, wherever's closest, but I try to avoid the, um, <laughs> the Starbucks. He's a 7-Eleven. He goes to the 7-Eleven. He's a man with I have standards. a couple of very good local cafes both next to work and, and home, so yeah, I'm well covered. There we go. But one interesting thing I saw when I was down in Taidong recently, uh, near Donghe, there's a person setting up their own coffee farm. So maybe we can look forward to more Taiwanese homegrown coffee. Yunlin? Doesn't Yunlin have coffee? Already? Oh, they already do, do they? I think somewhere. I think it's Yunlin. There's a couple of sort of mountainous areas. Yeah, yeah they have uh, coffee, local yeah, coffee. Yeah, that uh, they, they claim that, you know, it's as good as some of the stuff that you'll find in, you know, Peru. Uh, but... I'm not a, I'm not a coffee. Here's here's how much not of a coffee snob I am. I actually think that uh, the 7-Eleven coffee is perfectly fine. Tastes fine to me. 
So uh, I just I just get it for the buzz because it's what I need to get through my day. But uh, that is it for the show today. Uh, we are going to leave uh, the coffee talk behind and round out the show. Please do join us again next time, Time When This Week podcast, every Friday evening during the 8 p.m. hour, right here on ICRT FM 100, around about 8.15, uh, depending on the commercial load. You can also find an extended version of the show online at the ICRT website, on iTunes, a couple of other places as well. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I am Keith Menconi, joined as always by not-so-jittery Gavin Phipps. Yeah, goodbye. Uh, uh, also, uh, very happy to have on this show the slightly more jittery uh, Edward White. Thank you, Edward. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100. But I know where I go. I rest off the block.